the, uh, the, the basic program contents would range, would be my part, from the uh, historical perspective to the Apollo's 216 space lab and Apollo 30, then on to the final mission to the moon and the Apollo vehicles, the crew and the mission timeline, the map of traverses, and the next footsteps and the geology. So, um, you know, the right until the uh, until the Wright brothers, man was confined to the earth for about half a million years. And uh, he managed to spread to explore to all the continents except Antarctica. Okay. Now I don't get forwarding. I think we'll go back and ask him for you to control it. It's probably it's probable it's a cheerful in the way, but we'll deal with that another day. So let's move on to the next screen. Well, basically mankind was pretty much confined to, to uh, and animal power up until the, about the 15th and 17th century. And uh, one power, of course. But when the use of uh, the steam engines enabled factories and enabled larger cities, eventually we got to the point of uh, building the, uh, the railroads and Large transport, which were not practical for the average person. So, when the age of petroleum came along, internal combustion engine really gave us the, the, the mobility to the masses, and that also next, next week, and that also enabled us to move on to uh, to the possibility of flying. Uh, the age of aircraft is flying. Came about starting with the about 1800 with uh, you know, Tom Bailey's uh, recognition of the, uh, of the shape of the wing that, that was um, that produced that, and, uh, and the requirements for capability in the flying machine. And unfortunately, the, the rights somehow didn't read that part of it. Sorry, they were bicycle racers, and they were also the both of them racing and riding. And they were much more concerned with control than stability. And those two are at odds to one another. So um, they they were built as brilliant, stable aircraft, but essentially they had to observe birds develop. We realized that we needed six degrees of freedom control in flying vehicles. 
everybody else is pretty much getting around corners, not worrying about rolling and cleaning stuff. Anyway, the lights are going on as a human human Excuse me, this is not really enjoyable. You can't hear you. You're muffled and you sound like you're five miles away. There's a problem here. Can we fix well, it? I don't know. But try versus say continue on because it's not working. And so everyone who said there. So try without the, without the microphone. Because initially we test, it seems to be okay. But uh, it, it is fine now. Okay. Now, can you hear me any better now? Uh, it's still not good. Not, not good. You sound perfect speaking, but the presenter doesn't sound good. Oh, well, let's try it. Let's try this. Is this any better? A thousand times better. <laughs> what were we doing wrong? So I can be educated for the next time. <laughs> Okay, well, what was happening before was that we were using a microphone that is also a speaker that was uh, about four feet away from me. Yeah, which not I was good. Not necessarily this is perfect. Facing, so. Here we go. So now we now I picked up the thing and put it right in front of my face, and I guess it's working better. A thousand times. Thank you. Glad I spoke up. Okay, yeah, good. Anyway, so... Um, in the course of all that, they also invented the, the propeller theory and, and they developed the, the first aluminum block engine just 10 years after the, the hull process was patented. So we have everything in aviation to thank the, the, the rights for. We have them to thank. But of course, they, they basically dropped the ball after they got the they started doing the patent effort efforts and trying to control the, the economics of it. And after 1908, when they flight demonstrated in, in Europe, things moved much faster the rest of the world. Next screen. I have to move on faster than this. That's, I'm stretching that out too much. Anyway, the Wright Flyer Project is currently located out in Playbob Airport near Riverside. And uh, these are two examples of the, of the previous flyers that were built. And next screen. So space travel was conceived actually in the 19th century. And uh, Cholesky published the rocket equation in 1803, although William Moore had privately and 
developed it in 1810 and, and had only published it uh, academically a few years later. And of course, Jules Verne popularized the idea of space flight. And Robert Goddard's rockets, liquid-fueled rockets, gave us the energy capability to, to get significant lift or significant light. And where Von Braun demonstrated that uh, it was uh, had a lot of military capability. So next screen. So the space age actually initiated with. Uh, uh, with with that military view to it, uh, the U.S. brought the uh, Von Braun to the United States, and the rest of the PNN, much of the rest of the PNN crew, ended up going to to Russia. Uh, the atomic bomb and eventually the hydrogen bomb gave a target, uh, gave a, uh, a a payload that was serious. And uh, then along in the fifties. The idea of spaceflight by people once again took took uh, actually took real attention, and of course Yuri Gagarin beat us to the orbit in uh, in '61. Just uh, a month later, Alan Shepard did his little 200 mile flight, which would have been significant if it hadn't already been. If Gagarin hadn't already been three orbits, but that led President Kennedy to give that famous mission statement for the Apollo program to uh, to to send men to the moon for scientific research and exploration and return them safely to the Earth by the end of the decade. And by golly, by July twentieth. 1969, we had done that. Next screen. So, the uh, you know, let's move on from that one. So, now we're getting into the actual Apollo presentation, and this is uh just a brief outline of what we'll be talking about soon. So here we go. Next screen. Okay, so the pad fire. Think so? Okay. Let's try that again. Does this work okay now? Yeah. So good. Okay, good. Okay, so anyway, uh, Grissom, Chaffee, and White died in that fire. Um, the uh, the islands, the the petroleum islands off in uh, Long Beach Harbor, incidentally, are named successively Grissom, Chaffee, and White. A memorial of them. The this forced redesign of many of the systems in the in the spacecraft. First of all, it was the it was the side hatch because that was the escape mechanism that they did not have. The side hatch was pressure loaded from the inside. You had to pull the hatch inside in order to open it. And when the when the uh, 
testing was done on the pad, they actually pressurized the cabin to 16 PSI. And uh, so there was a huge load on that uh, sidewall that no man could possibly have pulled against. So, and then in addition to that, that was a, that was a two-piece hatch. The outer hatch was uh, the ablative material for the for the thermal effects, and the inner hatch was the pressure vessel. So, uh, we also changed the forward hatches, which formerly was a, a pressure hatch at the forward bulkhead of the spacecraft, and uh, then an ablative hatch out at the end of the of the tunnel. It was changed over to be a, a single combined hatch integrated hatch at the end of the tunnel so when you uh, when you docked with the space with the lunar module they just re had to remove one hatch and then remove the probe remove the drogue and then and the hatch of the uh, of the lunar module the pressure hatch and so uh, it also facilitated orbital operations in the process. But that fire was, you know, the, the thing about fire is it takes three things. It takes, it takes a fuel, an oxidizer, and, a, and some kind of an igniting source. Uh, unfortunately, they were all there in that Apollo 1. The spacecraft was designed with a lot of materials that were supposed to be Flame-proof, moth-proof, mildew-proof. Uh, the the sequence of event of, of requirements on materials in that vehicle was was massive. But we we were putting uh, well, there's a lot of paper in there. Uh, there was a the the suits yeah that the pilot that the the astronauts were wearing was ordinary cotton kind of fabrics flammable and the uh, and the and and everywhere you looked in that spacecraft there were there were pages papers plastered on the wall with velcro and other things so uh, there was quite a lot of bustable material in there and uh, uh, I was told yesterday repeatedly that uh, that North American Aviation did not want to do a 100% oxygen environment, and they did not want to do a hatch that was uh, pressure-loaded. They wanted a, an explosive hatch, at least, to make an egress possible. Um, but NASA change order number one just... Uh, wasn't discussed after Apollo one fire. So uh, it was much more, much more political to, uh, to accept the blame and, and go on from there. Uh, anyway, on the day of the fire, I was actually working on a, on a replacement for the side hatch window. We were going to put a scientific airlock on there so that, something could be so specimens could be taken from the spacecraft put out in the in the uh, 
space environment and brought back in. Uh, and I thought, great, you know, it's here's a 22-year-old wonder. Should be able to uh, fix that hatch for them. Let's let's go ahead and get me on the Tiger team. Now they keep on working on the on the scientific airlock. It did eventually fly, I understand, on, on one of the later missions after the 17. But um, but the but the hatch was actually uh, an upgrade from what was what was initially proposed. Next next screen. So this is my small parts on the Apollo. Uh, we just talked about the lunar module engine afterwards. Uh, I did not work on that during the program, but I did work on it uh, when I got to TRW later. The side hatch is over on the right side, and then the, and the forward hatch was is on the left. That's the uh, what the what the original pressure hatch looked like. Um, I also worked on the uh, parachute retention system and the mortars and the airbag uh, recovery system, and also on the crew couch and the controllers and struts. So um, it was a massively busy two years that I worked there. And then I went on to Lockheed. So that's where I was when the Apollo 11, well, 7 through 17 were launched. We need to get onto the next screen. <laughs> Yeah, I think we. Uh, so, how's our time doing? Am I really blowing it? Getting close. So, uh, the various Apollo missions are. I think we all lived through those, and uh, they they again, progressed in a, in a logical testing fashion. Yeah, let's go on to the next one. So, uh, seven was the first manned orbital flight. Eight was the first, first use of the Saturn V. When you've got a Saturn V or you've got an, uh, an SLS, the only way to test that thing is to go all the way to the moon or back. Um, there's no other way, way you can use that much energy and come home. Uh, and uh, nine was the first ver orbital verification of the lunar module. Uh, Ten was a full dress rehearsal, and then of course, eleven was the uh, next screen, and, and of course, eleven was the uh, first manned landing. And that was just sixty-five years, seven months, and three days after the the Wright brothers flew. Isn't that amazing? So Apollo 12, they were very proud of their closer, of their precise landing, and they actually recovered some parts from the surveyor. One of our people in the, uh, in the Aero Alumni Group actually worked on the surveyor and gave us an interesting presentation about that. Apollo 13 was a successful failure. Uh, it, uh, they brought him back alive. That was success. So 14 took the mission of 13 and went to Framaro. 15 was the first lunar rover. And the uh, 17 was, uh, 16 was the uh, 
another interesting area, a mountainous region. No, the other was, they were both mountainous. And 17 was the first geologist uh, on the moon. So the last four command modules were used for the uh, Skylab and the uh, and the Apollo Soyuz mission. And uh, once again, that Apollo Soyuz capsule is actually at the California Science Center. And uh, uh, we'll be talking about that next next Wednesday uh, from from about eleven to about one o'clock. Next screen. So there there is the timeline of the of the mission, um, and the and the sample the return mass. They returned about two hundred and forty pounds of lunar material. And it's very productive material for research. Uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the one of the tubes that was driven into the into the lunar regolith was uh, uh, was just opened this last May. Uh, Harrison Schmidt was actually there, participating in that. Next screen. And I'm. I'd like to have bi biographies of these guys, but I think we're going to skip over those. There's the Apollo stack. Uh, we lead with a, a launch escape tower, and uh, that is jettisoned uh, uh, sometime after Max Q, uh, when when the uh, aerodynamic loads on the spacecraft are minimal, and when the uh, uh, and when they, there's a safe abort downrange, and the, the command module, uh, the service module, feeds the uh, the power and the and the uh, error to the uh, to the command module, and also uh, provides the, the propulsion system for the uh, for from for. Uh, Promote for beyond uh, around the moon. The uh, the third stage S four S four B gets them into a, a, a translunar uh, orbit or translunar trajectory, but uh, then they reverse the spacecraft. Let's go to the next scene, and uh, uh, they separate the two. And turn around the the command module, go back and and uh, the probe up on the top of the spacecraft, uh, then engages the drogue on the on the lunar module, and it draws them together with twelve latches around the uh, periphery of that. Uh, those things were quite a development issue. Uh, they have such strong springs in them that when the uh, uh, when they when they first fired them off, they were breaking the highest strength, tensile strength steel that we that we had available. Um, we ended up uh, determining that the ductility was more important than than strength in that instance, and so they became the first inconel parts that we, that that I was involved with. Um, and. I'm just going to go ahead and and say that uh, you know this is that's the spacecraft. Um, 
if anybody has any questions about it later, we can talk about that, but let's move on to the next. This is a, uh, the, one of the most important parts of the, of the uh, lunar systems. It's the uh, lunar ro rover, or the, uh, yeah, the rover. Um, and it was all tucked away in one compartment of the lunar module, the descent module. The uh, pilots had to go out, pull it down on a set of, uh, set of cords and uh, unfold it. The, the, the wheels were all folded up. It was a very compact package. And it's a very basic chassis. Um, I think it drives like a, like our, like the, like the future cars, basically with buttons. Mask a quick question, please. Sure. You that thing uh, weighs something. Uh, it has to be the whole module has to be centered around the, the lift engine, I assume. And uh, yes. how did they balance out to get the CG over the thrust line? If that's a good question. Yeah, the short answer is I don't know. Okay. Basically, they basically they move something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. Because then you have to take off or well, leave behind. Uh, I understand. Thank you. Yep. Next screen. And there's another view of the uh, of the lunar roving vehicle. Next screen. Next screen. And this is the traverses that were done with Apollo 17 on that. Uh, ex ex oh, interesting, isn't it? That the, uh, there's dead-ended pieces out there. They didn't, those are not dead-ended. That, that was a continuous loop, I believe. Well, they had to come back somehow, didn't they? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They, they basically did not return on their own tracks. At least that's the, my understanding. Well, it, it looks like there may have been, there must have been some parts of it that were very close. Next screen. And this is the Harrison Schmidt standing next to the, uh, uh, to the, to the giant uh, boulder. It's a split rock. That's uh, it was one of the prizes of the uh, of the samples to, to be, be be taken. And uh, that's where I'm going to pass it over to the next speaker, I believe. Next screen. Oh, okay. We did have a successful return and reception, but uh, okay. Okay, the next speaker is is William uh, Wittenbury, and uh, he and his early in his uh, in his college days. Uh, interned with uh, with GE and subsequently with uh, with TRW and I think Marshall and uh, let him carry on from there. Thanks everybody. Um, before I get started with my part, I just want to make sure everybody can hear me who's on the online since I, it looks like we switched microphones at one point. So can somebody just verify that I'm coming through clearly here? Five by five. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, hi, everybody. My name is William Wittenbury. I am an AIAA member. Um, I have some experience working on the Artemis program, which we're going to be talking about as sort of the, the next step in lunar exploration. 
Um, as Gary mentioned, I was an intern at GE Aviation, and I also interned at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama for NASA directly. That's where I worked on Artemis, and then I currently work for Northrop Grumman, but uh, I am speaking on my own behalf, not as a representative of any particular company or entity tonight. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with Artemis and all the different steps of this program and the different vehicles that are involved in getting us back to the moon for the first time in 50 years, which is pretty exciting. Uh, let's see. Do I have the little clicker? Do you need to do the slides? Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if that works. No. Okay. I'm just going to have you advance the slides if that's okay. Can we do the, the next slide, please? Okay. There we go. Okay. So our first step in our presentation is a little technical description of the Space Launch System rocket, which is what is used to launch the Artemis missions, and in particular, the Artemis 1 mission, which is ongoing right now. Um, there are also several other vehicles involved in the program, but this is the primary launch vehicle for Artemis. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Then I'll talk about sort of the, the paths to the pad, the launch operations, as well as some of the other aspects of the program, including the Orion spacecraft, the Lunar Gateway Station, um, and what's coming up next for the program. Um, next slide, please. So here's a cutaway of the SLS vehicle. SLS, like I mentioned, stands for Space Launch System. A little bit of background on this is that the Space Launch System is born out of what was salvaged, essentially, from the Constellation program. For those of you who remember this, back in 2004, um, the Bush administration started something called the Constellation program. Let's see if we can sort out this uh, feedback issue we're having here. Um, and the idea behind Constellation was returning to the moon for a variety of reasons, including some technical challenges, some budget and cost overruns, and the 2008 recession, Constellation was canceled in 2009 um, after the recommendations of the Augustine Commission, but the U United States Senate stepped in and essentially salvaged aspects of the program, most notably the Orion capsule, which is what's currently flying around the moon, um, the solid rocket boosters, which are shuttle-derived but were developed for the Ares launch vehicle, which was part of that whole Constellation program, and most importantly, at least for Artemis One what Congress did was they mandated that NASA continue to design and develop a heavy lift launch vehicle. Um, and this was important because when Apollo, after Apollo 17, after Skylab, um, the retirement of the Saturn V meant that the United States essentially lost the heavy lift launch capability that we had enjoyed during the Apollo era. We did have the space shuttle, which was a fantastic vehicle and enabled us to keep sending astronauts into orbit for 30 years but it didn't have the payload capacity to send large vehicles to the moon. The space shuttle itself was limited to low Earth orbit. And so SLS represents a restoration of heavy lift deep space exploration capability that we haven't had for 50 years. The idea behind the SLS design was to maximize reuse of shuttle heritage hardware that's already flight proven and already had existing production lines. The idea being to try to keep people employed and minimize the transition between the two programs and also try to save on cost and schedule. So the core stage of the SLS, which is in the center portion of the slide, has two major tanks, the hydrogen tank on the bottom and the oxygen tank on the top. Most of us are probably familiar with the space shuttle. This is essentially a stretched version of the orange external tank, which is famous for its use on the shuttle program. The key difference is that the RS-25 space shuttle main engines, which are reused from the shuttle program, were moved to the bottom of the core stage instead of on the orbiter. And then the two solid rocket boosters on the side are also shuttle-derived hardware. Uh, the difference here is that they have an extra segment, so they're a little bit longer than the solid rocket boosters used on the shuttle, but they're the same diameter and actually reassembled from the same components. 
so what's kind of cool about the Artemis 1 SLS vehicle is that it uses a lot of heritage hardware. The two solid rocket boosters combined launched 80 shuttle missions, um, and the four RS-25 main engines also launched, I think, 18 shuttle missions and a total of 131 individual astronauts over the course of their career. So a lot of reused hardware, which is pretty cool. Next slide, please. Um, here's a little bit more of an exploded view of what's going on here. Um, I'll try to go through this quickly because there's a lot of pieces here. Another thing that's interesting about SLS is that it is truly a national collaborative effort. Um, there are 1,100 individual contractors involved in SLS in all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Um, the main prime contractors are pretty much the usual cast of characters when it comes to major aerospace contracts. So the core stage prime contractor is Boeing. The two solid rocket booster prime contractor is Northrop Grumman following their acquisition of Orbital ATK in 2018. Um, the main engines, the RS-25s, are an Aerojet Rocketdyne product. Um, and then I haven't mentioned this yet, the second stage of what's called the Block 1 configuration of the SLS, and that's the one that launched on Artemis 1. I kind of call it the base model because it's the initial configuration. Um, the second stage is what's called the ICPS, or Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage. Um, it's called Interim because NASA is developing a larger upper stage called the EUS, or Exploration Upper Stage, which will have about 43% more payload capacity to the moon. But... This one's available off the shelf right now, and so that's what they're using. It's identical to the upper stage used on the Delta IV heavy launch vehicle and is produced by United Launch Alliance, which is a joint venture of Lockheed and Boeing. The, yes, yes, the engine is an RL-10 Aerojet Rocketdyne product, yes. Um, and then um, the crew module is the Orion, which is produced by Lockheed. Interestingly, the service module is actually the European Space Agency's contribution. And so that is produced by Airbus Space and Defense in Bremen, Germany. It's actually derived from their automated transfer vehicle, which is used to carry cargo to the International Space Station. But the engine is, again, a U.S.-produced engine. It's actually a repurposed Space Shuttle Orbital Maneuvering System, or OMS engine, which previously flew on 19 shuttle flights for Artemis One. Another Aerojet Rocketdyne product. So except for the solid rocket boosters, every, every liquid engine on this vehicle is an Aerojet Rocketdyne product. Next slide, please. Um, so a little bit of, of how big is SLS. You can see it's quite large. This is actually a slightly dated picture because it has the Saturn V-inspired paint scheme that was dropped um, and didn't end up getting used. But you can see this is a comparison of SLS Block 1 on the left and Block 2, which is not flying yet, on the right, compared to legacy U.S launch systems. Um, also, it was very satisfying for me to replace the SLS will be the most capable U.S. launch vehicle with SLS is the most capable U.S. launch vehicle as of a couple weeks ago. Next slide, please. Um, I'll, I'll also mention that the previous most um, capable active launch vehicle was the Falcon Heavy. SLS has about 30% more payload capacity to LEO, and it's a larger margin to translunar injection. I've already showed you this slide, so we don't really need to revisit that one. We'll get this back in a second here. Okay, um, continuing on to the next slide, please. I think we're, we're doing some, some repeats here. I'm not sure what's going on. Okay, here we go. Um, all right, so I mentioned a little bit about the solid rocket boosters. As I said before, these are shuttle-derived hardware. These each produce about 3.6 million pounds of thrust, which is more than the application that they had in the shuttle. The reason for that is because of an extra segment. There are five segments as opposed to four. Each one of these two... Uh, solid rocket, each one of the solid rocket boosters is more powerful than two Falcon 9 launch vehicles put together. So that gives you a little bit of a feel for how powerful they are. 
They are the most powerful single rocket motor ever produced. I'm happy to report now that they've actually flown that their performance was essentially perfect. Um, the goal was to try to have the, the two thrust profiles of the boosters be as close to identical as possible. And when the data came back from the mission, they were within one-tenth of a mil of each other. So very close. Next slide. Uh, here's some more details on the core stage. Um, I mentioned there's basically these five main structures in the core stage. So I already talked about the hydrogen tank and the oxygen tank. Connecting them is the inner tank, which also contains the structural supports for the solid rocket booster attachments. We have the forward skirt and then the engine section, which has the most complicated plumbing and everything else. So that's the last step to go on. Um, the core stage only provides about 25% of the initial thrust of the rocket. SLS has 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust when it takes off, which is the most of any successful operational rocket. I say that because the Soviet N1 technically had more first stage thrust, but it never really worked properly. But it is more powerful than the Saturn V and more powerful than the space shuttle. Next slide, please. Um, a little bit more information about the RS-25 space shuttle main engine, a jet rocket dime product. Um, this was, of course, initially designed for the space shuttle, which had three of these engines on each orbiter. On SLS, there are four of them. For the first four rockets that launch, so for Artemis 1, 2, 3, and 4, they are using legacy shuttle hardware. So basically, engines that actually flew on the shuttle. They were taken off of the orbiters when they were retired. If you go to the Science Center and see the Endeavor, those are replicas on the Endeavor because the actual engines are being reached for Artemis. Um, after that, after the first four flights, um, subsequent SLS vehicles will have new build engines that Aerojet Rocketdyne is making now. They have reached the production line for the Space Shuttle main engine. Um, it's now referred to as the RS-25. There are improvements to the, the new builds. They are going to have a lot of 3D printed components as well as um, some, a, a larger thrust capacity. And um, that's all intended to reduce cost and improve the performance of the engine. Um, but so parts of that is locally produced. Some of the work is done in Canoga Park in the Valley, which is kind of exciting. So sort of a hometown uh, rocket engine. But the, this is a hydrogen engine, as we've mentioned before, which means it's a very efficient engine. The RS-25 is still one of the most efficient large engines ever produced. Um, so it's a great choice for this application because it, it produces a, a very high specific impulse. And then it also is actually fairly eco-friendly because the only um, byproduct is water vapor, which is pretty cool. Next slide, please. Here's some, some plans for the evolution of the SLS platform. So I mentioned that they were working on a new upper stage, the EUS or exploration upper stage. That's going to be used on the block, what's called the block 1B configuration here. So this is the, the upgrade that's intended to be used starting on Artemis 4. The first three launches will be using this block 1 configuration. Um, and then the EUS will come up here. It's, it's basically a larger version of that Delta upper stage. It looks very similar, except it has four RL-10s instead of one. So definitely boosted capability. Um, so these numbers are actually a little out of date. So it turns out the block one actually has uh, 95 metric tons of payload capacity uh, to low Earth orbit. Block 1B has 105. Uh, it doesn't seem like a huge upgrade, but it's a larger difference when you're talking about translunar injection. So that's why the EUS is a priority. Um, there's plans for both cargo and crew versions of the Block 1B. The crew version can also carry what are called co-manifested payloads um, in this stage adapter here. So some of the ideas for that are gateway modules, other things like that. And then the ultimate evolution, which is kind of undergoing initial work right now, is called the Block 2. This will bring capacity up to 130 metric tons to low Earth orbit, and that's done through the um, adoption of some upgrades to the solid rocket boosters. Uh, so Northrop is working on those, those new boosters right now. 
I believe the EUS has passed critical design review and is undergoing some weld test articles right now. So it's a real product. It's, it's coming soon. That's not currently in the plan. So the EUS is supposed to have four RL10s. Um, an early version of the design did have a J2X. When SLS was first proposed, it carried that over from the Ares 5 design, which had the J2X. As of the moment, I'm not aware of any specific plans to use the J2X going forward, but it's a cool engine. So maybe, uh, maybe someone will change their mind. Next slide, please. So what are we actually launching with SLS? We're launching the Orion spacecraft. Um, Orion is America's new deep space exploration vehicle. Um, this is a long development history. I mentioned a little bit about Project Constellation. So this goes all the way back to the beginnings of that program, but it is finally carrying out its mission. We're very excited. It looks a lot like the Apollo capsule, but it's significantly larger. Um, and it also has more advanced you know, computer equipment, avionics, all the kind of modern technology that we're able to put into it. The, the idea being that the basic concept behind Apollo is still very sound. We're just upgrading it with everything we have available now. Next slide, please. Okay, that, that one shouldn't be there, but we're going to, okay, there we go. Um, this one is a, just a little bit more details about what's going on with the Orion. Um, we have these four solar arrays. That's a major difference compared to the Apollo vehicle. So you saw in Gary's presentation, Apollo used fuel cells, whereas Orion has solar arrays. That's a major design difference. Um, but otherwise, it's a very similar configuration. Another luxury feature that Orion has is a private ensuite bathroom which is a first for a US-based capsule. I think the shuttle had it, but this is a first for a capsule. Next slide, please. Just a little bit more information about how this all comes apart. The launch abort system um, is, I believe, the most powerful ever built. The two companies are involved with this. So the separation motors were from Aerojet Rocketdyne, and then the actual abort motors are from Northrop Grumman. Um, and um, this is just sort of the overall picture of what we're seeing here. Next slide, please. Here's a cutaway view. Orion can theoretically accommodate up to seven astronauts on board. I believe in operational configuration, it will actually carry four, but it has the capacity to carry seven if necessary. And you can see here, there's, there's seven seats here in the original design configuration. Um, I should mention that um, one of the key goals of the Artemis program, which is something that was missing, unfortunately, from the Apollo era, is um, we're trying to go back to the moon and, and bring everybody this time. So we're going to be landing the first woman and the first person of color on the moon. We're also going with international partners. Um, and so this is a, a larger, more inclusive effort than some of our previous space missions have been in the past. So we're excited about that. Next slide, please. Um, another project that's ongoing right now is what's called the Gateway. This has gone through several different iterations of its name. At one point, it was the Deep Space Gateway. Then it was the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway, or LOPG, which really rolled right off the tongue. Um, and now it's just the Gateway. Um, but the Gateway is going to be a, essentially a base camp or outpost in lunar orbit. It's going to what's called a near-rectilinear halo orbit around the moon, which at its perigee will bring it very close to the moon, and at its apogee, will, or actually apolune, excuse me, will be very far away from the moon. Um, but this orbit was selected by NASA because it facilitates landings at the lunar poles, which, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be at the L1 point. It is an actual orbit around the moon specifically as opposed to a Lagrange point. Um, but it was chosen to facilitate exploration at the poles. The Apollo missions were mostly equatorial. And the intention here eventually with Artemis is to establish a permanent presence at the lunar south pole. Uh, where we believe there are water resources as well as potentially habitable lava tubes, interestingly. So the gateway is already being built. Um, there are two initial modules, which you can see on this slide. This is what's called the HALO, or Habitat and Logistics module. 
This is being produced by Northrop Grumman. And then we have what's called the PPE, or Power and Propulsion Element. This is being built by Maxar Technologies, um, which I believe is formerly known as Loral, for those of you who are more familiar with that. These are actually going to be launched together on a Falcon Heavy in a couple of years. Um, it's not necessary to utilize this to land on the moon with Artemis technology, but eventually it will help facilitate the missions going forward. Next slide. So we're going to talk a little bit now about the manufacturing, the testing, and the path to the pad, how we got here. Um, this is a nice view of SLS on the pad that's a little taste of what we're going to see here. Next slide. Um, so the individual five pieces of the core stage are all manufactured. It was called the Mishu Assembly Facility in New Orleans. That's the same building where the Saturn V was manufactured, as well as the Space Shuttle external tank. Um, again, the idea being trying to keep the production lines open. Because the SLS core stage has the same diameter as the shuttle external tank, it can use a lot of the same tooling, which helped cut costs. Um, and, but we use some new techniques as well. So the technique is called friction stir welding, and that's what's used to create these tank structures. Um, I don't have a video to demonstrate it, but basically a bit is able to, using friction heat, sort of force the two pieces together without an external addition of material. Yeah, yeah. So um, a, a lot, there's actually quite a bit of Delta IV heritage on, on SLS between that technique and the ICPS and, and several other things. Um, after the individual structures are complete, they go through the, the TPS application, the foam. Um, it's the same kind of foam that we're familiar with from seeing it on the shuttle. It's that orange color. It actually starts out kind of a butter yellow, and then as it ages, it gets darker and darker. So that's why you'll see the, the SLS on the pad looks kind of burnt orange. There's a vertical stacking structure here for what's called the forward join. This is um, a progression here in the Mishu assembly facility where it starts with the inner tank structure, then they drop on the oxygen tank, and then the forward skirt. Next slide. Okay, I think maybe with the PDF there was an issue. But next thing that happens after that is what's called the tank join. So the forward assembly, which has the um, forward skirt, oxygen tank, and inner tank, is then attached horizontally to the hydrogen tank. And then the last step, step is putting on the engine section. Um, what you caught a glimpse of in that previous picture was the installation of the RS-25 shuttle main engines on the back of the vehicle. Next slide, please. That's, that's the picture right there. Okay. So you can see a little bit of this person. So it's a large rocket. <laughs> um, and the SLS core stage is 212 feet tall just by itself, which means it is the largest functional rocket stage ever produced. Next slide, please. Here's the rollout. NASA made a big deal out of the rollout. As I recall, they had a marching band, um, and they, they live-streamed it and all kinds of stuff, and, and then it was put on what's called the Pegasus barge here. Um, the Pegasus barge is used to transport these stage components to the various other NASA facilities where they're tested. Um, there was a whole battery of tests that they had to go through on SLS before we got to the Artemis 1 mission. The first one, which I don't have pictures of in here, um, was the dynamic test. So they actually built a whole another core stage just to destructively test it. They, they eventually crushed it like an aluminum can to figure out just how much it would take to do that. And the answer is a lot. Um, and then um, this core stage went through a series of tests called the Green Run. And that was done at the uh, Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, where the engine testing is done. I believe we have some information about that in this presentation. So we'll go to the next slide. Yep, this is the Green Run. So this is called the B1 test stand down at Stennis. You can't really see it very well, but this is the core stage up on the stand. So it's a little view of how big this building is that you can stack this 212-foot-tall rocket on top of it. Um, they did fire the, the core stage for the full eight and a half minute duration of the core stage burn during the, the mission. Um, and they validated that it performed well under those conditions. It took a few tries to get all the way up to the eight and a half minutes, but eventually they did get there. Next slide, please. Uh, 
Here's a picture from the green run test showing all four of the uh, RS-25 engines firing. Very exciting moment for those of us who worked on the program. Next slide. Here's the test objectives that they got through with the green run test program. I won't run through all of these, but the bottom line is it passed. So that was good. Uh, <laughs> next slide. Um, after that, it was time to finally stack the completed rocket. The solid rocket boosters actually were the first to arrive at the Cape. These were in storage for several years before the core stage actually got there. Um, an interesting fact about the solid rocket boosters on the shuttle and the SLS um, is that their diameter is driven by the lowest rail bridge between Utah and Florida. And that is what dictated the design uh, because the individual segments are shipped by rail from Promontory, Utah, where they're manufactured. So the two um, solid rocket boosters were dropped into place inside what's called the VAB or Vehicle Assembly Building, which was originally built to support Apollo and also supported the shuttle program. After that, the core stage, once it completed the green run test, was dropped into place between the two um, SRBs. I say dropped, but it was a very delicate process. Um, and then after that, um, the what's called the LVSA or Launch Vehicle Stage Adapter, this, this frustum shape here was put in place on top of that. After that, we had the ICPS, that Delta IV upper stage that I was talking about. After that, they put a Orion um, mass simulator, so not the actual space vehicle, on top for a bit to do some more dynamic tests. Once it passed that, they took that back off and then put the Orion in place. After everything was finally stacked, they rolled all the work platforms back and took a whole bunch of pictures, of which this is one of them. Um, for those of us who had worked on the program, it was a really exciting moment to see the actual vehicle in a photo as opposed to a computer-generated illustration, which we'd seen for years. So that was pretty cool. Next slide. Um, after that, it was time for the rollout. Um, the rollout was another big deal. There was another marching band. Uh, I, think they, they, I think they may have even brought in Yo-Yo Ma or something. I mean, they really went all out for this. Um, there were actually several rollbacks and rollouts to and from the launch pad over the course of the flight campaign. I won't go into exhaustive detail about all the, the roller coaster with that, but there was quite a bit of things that happened. The first thing that had to happen was the wet dress rehearsal, which was essentially tanking the rocket all the way up to when they would actually light it, but not actually light it. So they did that. After that was completed, it was rolled back to the VAB for some final systems checks, um, and then it went back out to the pad. Uh, for those of you who were following this mission closely, there were a lot of twists and turns to this story. The first launch attempt was August 29th. Um, that didn't go because of an engine controller, uh, not engine controller, an engine um, bleed sensor issue. Turns out that there wasn't actually a problem with the engine. It was a problem with the sensor. Um, but it was enough to be better safe than sorry. There were a few other issues as well. Um, August 3rd, I'm sorry, uh, September 3rd was the next launch attempt. That was scrubbed because of some hydrogen leaks. Uh, as well as a few other issues. Um, after that, one of the leading concerns was the flight termination system batteries had technically expired, and so NASA was trying to get a waiver on those, um, as well as a few other outstanding problems. Eventually, at the end of September, they managed to do uh, the tanking test, which was sort of a rerun of the wet dress rehearsal that verified that the fixes to the hydrogen system worked. Although there were a few small leaks that occurred throughout the test, they did manage to verify that the system was performing well enough to proceed with the next launch attempt. And then we had a hurricane. So um, after that, was, uh, that happened, they had to do an emergency rollback to the VAB, which they delayed as long as they possibly could, which led everybody to be biting their nails of what's going to happen. Um, once that hurricane passed, they rolled back out to the pad, and they're saying, okay, now we really mean it. We're going to launch on November 14th. And then we had another hurricane. Um, so nobody saw this coming, but we had the first hurricane to make landfall in Florida in November in 40 years, 
happened to happen during the launch campaign. This time they left it out, which really scared everybody. Next slide. Um, yeah, the, that, the winds were a little bit above the rated gust capacity, so we were a little concerned about that. A few pictures before I tell you what happened next. I actually flew out to Florida with my family and a close friend to try to see the, October, the August 29th launch attempt. This is a photo I took with extreme telephoto zoom of the rocket on the pad, so I did see it in person. Um, next slide. We did uh, go with 500,000 of our closest friends to Titusville um, to try to watch the launch, and we would have had a great view, um, and it didn't go. But it was still a cool experience. We slept in the car overnight and um, you know, got to be part of the excitement of the buildup to the mission. Next slide. Um, with the rocket on the pad, that really kind of hammered home to me that we have, in fact, restored the Apollo-era capability. Uh, so this is kind of a neat comparison between the Apollo 17 Saturn V versus the Artemis I SLS. You can see that the overall setup really hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still using the mobile launcher. Um, this is on pad 39B. This is pad 39A, but 39B was originally built to support Apollo. Um, very exciting time that we're, we're going back to the moon finally, and this time as part of a sustainable long-term program. Next slide. This is that picture of the second hurricane. So when this was going on, we were all going, oh, please don't have any break. Um, but fortunately, the rocket did weather the storm successfully. NASA did not roll it back for the second hurricane because it was a Category 1. And um, after the hurricane, there was a, a review to ensure that everything was going smoothly. It turned out it was good to go. And so, next slide, it was finally time for the launch. This is Artemis 1's last uh, morning on Earth, last sunrise. So this is a cool picture. Next slide. And finally, on the night of November 16th, um, the launch occurred. NASA was actually trying to do a daytime launch for the longest time. Um, and then finally, circumstances dictated that they had to go with a night launch due to the launch windows, which meant that all of the carefully painted photogrammetry targets were essentially useless. But it did make for a very spectacular launch. Um, so also, I like to point out in this picture that this thing right here is the part that I worked on, and it's fun to get to see that in action. So that's pretty cool. Um, next slide, please. Um, here's just some more views of the launch. Next slide. This is the SRB separation with the uh, core stage continuing on after that. SRB separate after about two minutes of the flight, and then the core stage goes on for another six and a half minutes. Next slide, please. This is the separation of the Orion from the uh, ICPS second stage. Next slide. What is Artemis 1 actually doing? Um, it is doing what was called a distant retrograde orbit around the moon. Um, that did take it out to 268,000 miles. Um, which is the farthest that a human designed or spacecraft designed to carry humans has gone. Um, it beat Apollo 13's record. It is now on its way back and is due to splash down on December 11th. Um, this is an uncrewed mission. There's nobody on board, but the next flight, Artemis 2, will be a crewed flight. And we're basically checking out everything of Orion's performance. Um, so far, it has managed to hit all of its objectives. In fact, it's doing so well that they added some additional tests that they didn't think they were going to have time for. Um, and then the final test will be of the heat shield coming back from lunar velocities at the very end of the mission. Next slide. Here's some great pictures that we got from um, Orion. So somebody had the bright idea to put cameras on the ends of the four solar arrays. And so we're getting all kinds of cool selfies from Orion, which is kind of fun. Um, you can see here we got the moon and the Earth just showing just how far away this vehicle is, at least at this point in the mission. It's, it's back to being closer now. Um, and it's also a fun example of collaboration between NASA and the European Space Agency since they provided the service module. They, the European Space Agency found a picture that more prominently shows the ESA sticker that's on the other side of the vehicle, and they've been like playing that one up to the hill. Next slide. Um, real quick, I know we're almost at time here. 
so my contribution to the program was I worked on the liquid hydrogen tail service mast umbilical plate, um, which is a mouthful, but basically it's the interface between the launch pad and the rocket that provides the hydrogen fuel filling. My job was in what Northrop calls mechanical design integration, what NASA calls vehicle integration, but basically we produce drawings that control both sides of that interface to make sure that all the standards are in place, that they actually go together. Um, I was only at NASA as an intern for about five months, but it was a very exciting time in my life. We got to do all kinds of cool stuff, and um, it's great to see this hardware actually in action. Next slide. Um, here's a better view of what it actually looks like in person. This is the TSMU, or Tail Service Mass Umbilical Plate, right here. Um, the, right, the right side one is the hydrogen one that I worked on. The one on the left side is for the oxygen. Next slide. Um, here's a couple pictures from um, our, my intern experience. So this is when we took a tour of the Mishu assembly facility. This is the gore weld fixture, which is used for the tank domes. So we got to see that up close and personal, as well as some of the tanks being produced. Pretty cool. Next slide. Um, this is one of the RS-25 engines, which I believe was actually used on Artemis 1. So we got to see the four engines being prepped at Stennis, which was a very exciting experience. Next slide. Um, and then lastly, I'll wrap up with what's next for Artemis. This is core stage two. So this is the next one. It's almost done, which is exciting. They just have to put the engine section on, and that's about to happen, I think, later this month. Um, and then the core stages for Artemis three and four are also in fabrication right now. Number three is, has most of its major structures completed, and they're starting the foam application. And then uh, number four has some initial fabrication on those structures. Next slide. This may, be, this may be the last one, actually. Let's see. If it is, um, I think it is. Okay. Um, and then lastly, the other piece of the puzzle is, which I didn't go into a whole lot of detail here, is the lander, the human lander system, or HLS. There's actually going to be two landers. SpaceX is providing the first one, and then NASA is doing a competition for the second one, um, which they will announce the results of in June of next year. So stay tuned. So, oh, yeah. So there, there are several dummies on board the vehicle right now that have been equipped with radiation vests to try to measure um, what, what they're dealing with up there. As far as I know, they're doing fine. Haven't heard anything to the contrary, um, but hopefully that continues to be the case. The ESA also sent a stuffed sheep on board, and, um, not like a real one, but a, like a plushie. Um, and then um, NASA sent a Snoopy as well on the mission. Yeah, yeah. Na NASA sent the Snoopy, ESA sent the sheep. Um, so they each had their little uh, spokesperson. Yeah, priorities. And then, like I said, the next flight will have actual um, crew members on board. So that's my part. I know we're moving on to the geology next, and that'll kind of close out our program for the evening. And I'll be around at the end Can if anybody go, has any questions. Oh, Can you go looks back like to the, was... slide? the RS25 Sorry. slide. Uh, the, the recovered RS25, there's a delay in it loading, and I didn't get to see it. The RS25 slide, the recovered one, there was just a couple slides before the last one. Oh, um, we can try to go back to that. Maybe we'll revisit that one at the end because we know we want to get on no to problem. our next part of the presentation, but I'll be around at the end. Thanks. And I, I'm not sure if that was the question, but unfortunately, no part of the SLS is currently intended for reuse, but it is reused because they pulled them off of the shuttle. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's very good. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So, Bob, are you available? I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of a different talk than the first two. Uh, this is the uh, science part. You know, scientists always have to be token parts of the mission because you guys are supposed to be doing it for us. And so this is, uh, we're going to talk about the geology of the, of the moon, but I'm going to focus on the Apollo 17. Uh, just to give a little background for those of you who do not, oh, excuse me, 
<clears throat> do not know me. Uh, I'm for the last uh, 25 years, I've been a Martian. Um, oh, and somebody mentioned uh, Mar uh, the Martian movie. That is not Mars, trust me. And um, so uh, I've been working on Pathfinder, the two spirit rovers, Curiosity. I'm in charge right now of drilling on the on Mars. And just to let you know, we picked our 37th drill target this morning, uh, which we'll get the data back on Friday to see if we were successful. So, um, but the last year, since the moon is now fired back up from a science point of view, it's been pretty active for a while for the engineers, but not for the scientists. Um, I have been working on trying to put in what we call a CLIPS program, and I'll talk about that in a moment, because my major part for the moon and for Mars is taking a look at the regular properties and looking at soils and looking at geomechanical properties. It would be nice to know that we can land these big spacecrafts on the on these bodies and that they will survive the landing. So next slide, please. Okay, I'm going to go through this a little bit fast since most of it has gone up, uh, gone over it. Um, the Apollo 17 was unique from a science point of view uh, because Jack Smith was, or Harrison Smith is official name, uh, was the first geologist that was actually put on the moon. Now, you may I may sound like I'm a little uh, down on astronauts, but astronauts are pilots. And when you go out into the field or you go out into the desert and you look at rocks, you always pick the prettiest rocks. Well, the prettiest rocks don't always tell you the story. If the rocks do tell you something, when we put uh, Harrison Smith on there, we were actually able to find the oldest rock identified so far in the solar system. Uh, was brought back. It was about 3.85 to 4 billion years old, part of the Earth that has been missing uh, because of plate tectonics. So it was nice to have a, a geologist on board, although he did graduate from Harvard. Um, and I'm not holding that against Harvard, but Harrison was a, uh, was a, is a great person and a great spokesman for geology and for uh, the Apollo 17 mission. The other thing was is that they spent about 75 hours on the moon. And that was just unheard of. You know, it must have been exhausting what they were doing, carrying around that uh, huge suit and trying to do uh, the experiments. And I'll show you some of the, the things that, uh, that they went through. Next slide, please. Um, I just wanted to mention here that the, the additional instruments that were carried on board the Apollo 17, um, besides the rover, uh, in fact, we don't really call it the rover because we have two other rovers or four other rovers. And just to let you know, I, I mentioned the rover as as that being called a rover at a meeting uh, years ago with American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts. And I got told that that was not a rover, Lunacod was. Um, and so that is a vehicle, that's a car, we'll, just, we'll keep it in the central world uh, as a scientist. But we also had a mass spectrometer. We were basically looking, which was very interesting that we thought about using the mass spectrometer to look up. The mass spectrometer looking down would have been far more efficient of what we know nowadays. But we were looking up to get the, whether there was an atmosphere. And yes, for those of you who may not realize it, when Apollo's blasted off from the surface for the next couple of days to a month, they did have a small temporary atmosphere around the moon. Um, we also were looking at things like that would, would affect future uh, landed missions on the moon. For example, meteorite impacts. And we're not talking about the big boys, the big meteorites, because those are those are catastrophic and there's not a heck of a lot you can do with it, but it's the micrometeorites that hit spacesuits, that hit hardware, hit space shields. Those are the things that we were trying to measure just so we can get an idea for safety and for, um, uh, for the astronauts. And then we were trying to measure uh, gravity waves. Um, that was a really interesting attempt. 
and I'm not going to go too much into it because I'm not a physicist, but uh, it uh, did show some positive results, but uh, not to what it was supposed to do. Next slide, please. Okay, now for, for those of you who may not realize that, I'm going to give you a little geology 101 on the moon. The moon basically has two types of rocks. One of them is, is basalt, which is what we find in two-thirds of the ocean, I mean, of the earth here, our oceans and our volcanics. If, in Hawaii, those are all basaltic rocks. Those are the dark areas, which are called mare. They used to think that they were seas when they looked at them, the ancient people looked at them from the earth. And so they thought they were water bodies of waters, and they called them mare. The other ones are the highlands, and those are the ancient rocks. Those are the lighter color rocks that are in orthocytes. Uh, we do find our orthocytes on earth. There's actually a place here uh, near uh, uh, L.A., where you can actually get some anorthosites up in the mountains. So anorthosites are a common rock, um, but that's what the majority of the highlands are made of. So you basically have a light, uh, dark comparison. Now, the one thing that we did not realize, that there was a lot of pre-Apollo um, uh, information, was that there was going to be volcanoes, uh, cinder cones, and all kinds of things on, on the moon. And this is what some of the landing sites were designed to do. They went to these mountainous terrains looking for volcanoes because volcanoes are great plumbing events. They bring up materials from deep inside the body and they can give you an idea of what we might find. Unfortunately, we found no volcanoes on the, on the moon so far. There's a couple that scientists will still argue about depending on who you talk to, but we do know that there's a lot of fountain volcanoes uh, or fountain eruptions on the moon because that's where you get the Mari, but they've all been covered up by the subsequent lavas and you do not see the source regions. So we, so a lot of these things, we went to look for volcanic rocks, volcanic ideas. You're going to see that we did find one area on Apollo 17, which showed that we did have a fountain-type volcanic uh, eruption, but we do not have any, quote, volcanoes like Mount St. Helens or anything that you see on the, uh, on the Earth. Uh, most of the rocks we find right that have been dated to date are about 3.8 to 3.9 billion years ago. And again, for those of you who are not geologists, the first two billion years of the Earth's history is really gone in, because of plate tectonics and water and this, this thing called life on Earth that kind of destroyed all the good rocks. And so um, when we look at the moon and when we look at Mars, Mars is already showing us some rocks that are almost four billion years old. And uh, that's the part of the history of the solar system that we're missing here on Earth. And it's a good reason for us to explore. Next slide, please. Now, being a ge uh, geologist, I'm going to show you what we call a walkabout. I'm going to go walk to each of those sites of the, the Apollo 17. Uh, but these are the two images. These are the one on the right was taken by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter of, uh, of this uh, uh, Taurus-Littrow Valley. Uh, and you can see they can make it in 3D now. They got uh, the imagery right now from the orbiting spacecrafts are much better than they were when Apollo mission was. And the one on the left, it's just a, a regional view to show you where we're, uh, where the, uh, I can't point anything. So it's where um, Taurus Littrow Valley is. Okay, next slide. Okay, so as you saw earlier, that's the course. And yes, they were continuous loops. They had three EVAs. The first one was a very uh, seven hour one. It was, sounds like it was a very short one, but it was a short one in distance only because what they did is they deployed a lot of instruments on the surface. And then, um, uh, and so there are three walkabout, three walkabouts here that I'm going to go through quickly and try to show you what the, uh, what the geology told us of that area. And you can see the little red corner there in the middle, that's the limb. 
and there's the limb on the surface, as you can see, it's sitting there. Um, the top right uh, image is showing you the lunar module taken from LRO. We can still see all the materials that we left behind on the moon. In fact, we can still see the rover tracks, rover tracks, sorry, the car tracks. And in some places, we actually think we may be able to see footprints. They're still there after all these, after 50 some years on the surface of the, uh, of the moon. Okay, so what you see these little numbers here, you'll see one, uh, which is just underneath the yellow arrow there. And then two is over here on the South Massif. And then you have a North Massif and uh, you'll see three, four, and five were there, and then six, seven, eight, nine were fo uh, focused on the North Massif. Now, we were assuming that these North Massifs were going to be highly uh, made up of the ancient crust of Mars, and it comes to find out that they're really majority made up of what we call breccias. The moon's surface has been impacted for four billion years, and so that surface is highly beat up. In fact, when we go, well, I'm going to show you some pictures of, excuse me, Harrison trying to get core samples. As you heard, one of the core samples was finally opened after 50 years. Those core samples were harder than anything that you could ever do on Earth. And it would be very difficult on, on uh, much more difficult than what we would see on Mars. And it's because the moon has been nothing but constant impacting and shaking and angular particles and glass particles being produced to make a soil that if you go down about a meter, meter and a half, it's almost almost a strength of concrete. And so uh, future missions, when they try to go down deeper, um, or, or if they're looking for uh, ISRU, in-situ resource utilization, and things like water and L, uh, minerals that they can use on the surface, going below one meter um, is going to be very difficult, even for modern uh, mining techniques that we see on Earth. So we're going to start with one. Next slide, please. And that's the, the what they call the ALSEP. It's uh, an instrument that's made up of four parts. It, uh, it actually has a, a lunar seismic on it. It has a grab, that's this, it also has a gravit, um, gravit, I'm say this word wrong, gravimeter, gravitometer. Um, and it measures those gravity waves. It measures the gravity of the Earth. It had a, an experiment to look at the lunar atmospheric chemistry as we talked, the mass spectrometer. And it was all put into this one package, and it was located here on one. It was one of the first things we put out. You can still see it today. I tried to find out if it's still operational, but I don't believe it is. Um, but um, it did give us an idea of the moon. Um, the moon, unlike the Earth, is, is much different in its internal structure. For the Earth, we have you know core, mantle, um, inner core, outer core, mantle, and crust. If you look at the interior part of the moon, it's basically like a bell. When, when you see a, a seismic hit or something, it actually rings like a bell does, which tells us that its internal structure is pretty much um, uh, dried up or, or basically changed. Uh, it's no longer what we call an active uh, planet. Uh, it's not an active body. I can't use the word planet. An active body. But that does not mean that it couldn't still have local pockets if, if something happened up of volcanic material, but those volcanic glass materials were about a billion years ago when they came out and the moon has showed very little since then. So that was the main focus of there. It took about seven hours to walk over, put this instrument out, pull the car down and all the other things you saw. And so after that, that was that little short walk about there from the limb up to number one and then back. Next slide, please. 
Okay, so then they went to stations two, two A, and three. Um, they went over to the south. Uh, actually, their furthest drive. It's amazing that they took the car out for the for the road drive. They went the furthest, and um, and so they went over to the southern massif to look at some of these things. At the bottom here, you'll see a picture taken of a a 360 panorama of what they were seeing from that location. Um, they found out that this this is where it really shocked them that most of these massifs were actually parts uh, they were that were formed from giant impacts. These are the basically the rims remnants of huge impacts, which shows the violent history that the uh, the moon went through. Now, I will mention that most people don't realize is that if you have a little golf ball and then you have a basketball, and the basketball is the Earth and the golf ball, or let's say the baseball is the moon and it's rotating, and the moon has been hit by tremendous number of impacts, the odds are that the Earth, too, was also hit by massive number of impacts. And so our Earth's early history of that impacting, even though we do find some, even though as recent as the Chicaloub one that, you know, wiped out the dinosaurs, but we can find some ancient ones that go back. But the, the Earth's early history was very violent, too, with impacts that most people don't realize. Uh, next slide. Now, this is one of my favorite pictures. When I remember when I first saw this picture, I'm not going to, I shouldn't age myself, but I was in high school when all this happened. And uh, that's the lunar limb. It's kind of, I blew it up here. I see it on the screen, but that's the lunar limb. And that's how far they drove away. You can see the massifs in the back, which like, again, are impact crater rims. And the area of the massif of number two, or the southern massif that's target, was to look at landslide materials that had fallen off that big hill and rolled down. Next slide. Okay. Now, um, if you go over, I'm going to skip three because three was just about the same as it it, they went over there looking that they thought it was a lava. And it come to find out it was all impact breccia on number three. And uh, let me explain what a breccia is. I guess I got to go back a little bit. A breccia is when, when you have an impactor, the impactor itself is not there anymore, just to let you know. It's, a, it's the shock wave that blows all these pieces apart. And when they do, they're, they're superheated. And what a breccia is, is it's basically just a mess of material that is all grown together, frozen in time, that they, and they're, you know, the way it forms is the liquid for, uh, freezes instantly. And so you have these angular shock particles with fine materials, with all kinds of materials that would not be found normally together in a sample. So the breccias, you can tell them the difference between that and a conglomerate. A conglomerate on Earth are things that are formed in water, whereas a breccia are usually formed by impacts or some type of a volcanism. So, but I wanted to show you number four. Four was where we found the first time that we found what we call the colored glass. You can see a picture of it on the side. If it, When you look at these um, photos, like on the top right, you would not realize that that is a uh, black and white. I mean, that is a color image. It looks so much black and white because the moon is really devoid of color. It's gray. And after talking to Harrison Smith, um, I got the pleasure of meeting him a couple years ago. One of the things he told me is as you walk towards the horizon, because the moon's horizon is so much closer to you, you always have this feeling that you might be falling forward because it feels like you're going around the horizon, whereas on the, on the Earth, the horizon is always off in a distance. But on the moon, when you're walking to it, you can see the horizon much closer. And so it, the horizon actually gives you a really uh, interesting feel. The second thing is, is there's very little color on the moon. Um, 
the, the material is really bombarded by solar winds, solar particles, meteorites and everything. And it's really got this dull gray, um, very fine grained material. One of the things that uh, when Cernan, the, the other astronaut with Harrison on the surface, when he got back into the lunar module, he, when they were taking off their spacesuits, his hand had some of the dust or dirt on it, and he rubbed his forehead with that material. That material did not come off, even washing it with soap and water for multiple weeks until the skin literally wore it off. It was almost like a tattoo. Uh, and it had gotten into the, into the pores of his forehead, and so that, that took weeks before that uh, soil eventually uh, fell off. But the orange soil was the part where we we realized that this is this means that you had hot you had hot material coming up during the impact or right shortly after the impact, and it formed under these beautiful glass spheres, and the moon has a tremendous amount of glass, because what happens is it's got a lot of quartz in there, a lot of silica, not quartz, a lot of silica, and that silica heats up in these impacts, and they form these little droplets of of, of glass. And so that area you're looking at, that red and the little pink areas, and you can see the footprints and everything, that's uh, glass and a majority. And uh, it was brought back from the Apollo uh, 17. Next slide, please. Okay, um, to, the, to five, heading back towards the limb on that same walkabout on that one day there, they went to two, two A, three, four, and five. And by now, I'm sure they were very tired because I think on one of them, I think it was three, they damaged one of the wheels, uh, uh, fenders, and they had to do a little repair job before they could get to four and five uh, by hitting it with something. I forgot, it, either they laid a tool on it or something, and um, they damaged one of the fenders of the of the car, and so they had to drive back with that bad fender, so they fixed it a little bit, you know, basically you pull it out, and then uh, they headed back to five, and this is what five looked like. You can see the the lander. And what it is, it's a small impact crater. It's called Camelot. It's about 600 meters in diameter. And you can see it's all the samples, those dark rocks that are laying there are basalts. And they've all been brought up from depth because that impactor, when it hit, brought that material from a deeper depth down and up to the surface where they're laying now. You can see it's very, very rough, very, um, probably wasn't easy to drive across. And, uh, and so, that little crater there showed us that there, the basalts were lying underneath this uh, Taurus Litro Valley. Probably from the depth of excav excavation, it was about 100 meters. Okay, so that ends the second walkabout, as we call them. Uh, just to let you know, on, on Mars, we do this with the rovers now. We do walkabouts in an area to try to get the geology down. And um, sometimes we don't ever go back because uh, we don't have to go back to the limb. We just continue on the next part. But these are pretty common in terrestrial geologists at walkabouts. Okay, so we're going to look at the last EDA, next slide, which will be stations six, seven, eight, and nine over on the north massif. And you can see that you this is where the boulders were and the soils that we were trying to collect. This boulder actually came from the top and slid down and broke. It's uh it looks like it's, you know, it's it's a very large piece that was up there, probably happened right after the impact. And its majority of it is breccious. There is some anorthosite in there. There's some basalt in there, again, because it's a mixed bag when you're in an impact area. The part that fascinates me is the soils. And those cores in the soils that you take, on Earth, what we do as a, as a geomechanical or a geotechnical scientist, 
you turn around and you take a core and you hammer it in the ground, you rotate it, and then you pull it up and seal it. Um, but on the, on the moon, it was very, very difficult. Uh, Harrison said that getting below a meter, he could not, almost not do. I don't know if he did it officially, but trying to get that core down there and in that soil because of the compaction. Um, I ran a test recently. I'm, I'm creating an instrument to be put on Eclipse mission to measure uh, soil properties. And we did it on Mars soils, and we were getting about the soils that were about 200 megapascals uh, in strength. And when we did the, uh, the lunar simulants that were done by JSC-1A, we were getting about 1,400 megapascals. So the soil's vibration and everything causes about six times the strength of the soils at depth. So um, it's, it's much different than people would believe. Okay, next slide. Okay, as we continue our walkabout, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna lump seven through nine together because I didn't wanna have put too many slides in here. So you're gonna see that most of these areas, seven, six, seven, eight, and nine, were all dominated by boulders that came off this uh, North Massif and rolled down the hill. And, um, and you can see that most of them are about the same. They're much larger. This is part of the, uh, uh, the uh, car, I'm going to call it, right here. You can see that was one of the cameras. So you can get an idea for scale as they were driving. You can also see the powdery material here. And if you look real close from a geological point of view, there actually looks like there was some layering in here. But that layering, we don't know at this moment what that was. So next slide. Okay, so um, the data collected basically gave us the two ideas. The two ideas was, is that we're, we're, this area is dominated by impact uh, breccias, usually uh, felspar ridge. Um, and so these are these large uh, massifs that are surrounding uh, Taurus Lithrow are basically nothing more than impact rims. Uh, that we see, even though you can't find the individual craters anymore. The hard thing was that they are covered by, this was the first time that we really, I mean, the Apollo mission, the missions, I should say plural, was the first time we started to understand that these, uh, the moon and other planetary bodies, such as Mars, Venus, Mercury, are and asteroids are covered with these regoliths that are totally different. Now, a difference between a regolith and a soil for, for you non-science majors uh, a soil has organics in it. A regolith does not have organics. And so we call them regoliths on these bodies. And uh, these, these regoliths are all different and they're all varying, but they do tell a very interesting history of what's going on um, in the region. So that's what we found then from the Apollo 17. The moon has been pretty much, uh, we have some high titanium, low titanium um, deposits. Uh, you did hear earlier about, well, the first possible astronauts will be in the South Polar region um, because of water. But the more we're looking now and the more we're starting to look at the data, we're starting to find water at a lot of parts on the Mars, not just what we call the PSRs. PSRs are the permanently shadowed regions, which never see the sun. This idea came about because we actually saw it on Mercury. We saw a crater that we thought had water because... Of, on Mercury, but it's in an area where we permanently shadowed. It never sees the sun. So this cometary water migrates to the poles, and that's why they believe that there's water deposits uh, on there. But the Sophia spacecraft and, uh, airplane that NASA has that's been flying is starting to find water molecules in areas that are not PSR. So the water may actually contain more moon, um, more water on the moon than we think. Now, you may say, well, we brought all these samples back and we didn't see any water. 
or the sheer act of bringing those samples back would have driven that water off before they were ever collected. That's how, how, how fast that water will, would disappear. So whether it's mineable, whether it's sustainable for human life, we don't know. But the moon is going to turn out to be probably much more interesting from a chemistry and a mineralogy part of view, and that includes water, than we've ever thought of before. And that's why you need actually need scientists on the ground walking around and looking. Next slide, please. Okay, I just want to put a picture of two of the samples that came from 17. Um, these are the, the basaltic rocks and the, and the breccias that you're seeing there. They're, they're jumbled up, they're broken. They got the one on the left, uh, 76295, has plagioclase and proxene, very similar to what we find in basalts. Um, we, we also find fragments of anorthosite. We're finding everything that was in the area mixed into one rock. And that's a, a tall tale sign that impact cratering is, is dominant. The same thing goes with the other one here. Now, I'm not going to get into the, to the nitty gritty of the mineralogy, which is the difference between a low calcium proxene and I, and a, a regular proxene on the samples are like that. But you can see that we can, you, have, you have dark rocks, you have green rocks, you have light rocks. Those are all because of a huge meteor impact. And that, and that little uh, scale on the side is, is one uh, centimeter, I believe. Yeah, one centimeter. Next slide, please. Okay, the last thing I'm going to talk about is the soils. As you see, we're trying to collect. This was a drill that was trying to collect soils and rock samples. Again, uh, look at um, Harrison Schmidt's uh, spacesuit. Uh, those spacesuits uh, were just totally covered with, with this fine ash. It's fine dust. So, uh, the, when you have particles that are less than 100 microns, so down to submicrons particles. Um, in fact, some of the features that the astronauts saw was levitation. That happens because these very, very fine particles are statically charged. Electrostatics is very, very high on the moon. But just to give you a little bit of hint, it's higher on Mars because of what's called a passion curve. And Mars has tremendous electrostatics. Uh, the moon does too, where particle, the astronauts actually saw particles uh, look like dust and fog levitating off the ground on the horizon because of the being heated or being excited by the uh, uh, solar wind. This is how they were scooping samples. You can see the footprints. On the original Apollos, they had these huge rods that were at the end of the landing pads. There was a, there was a lot of people, or I shouldn't say a lot, but some scientists believed that when the Apollo 11 had landed, it was going to sink into the soil because it would be so soft. And so they put these uh, uh, rods on it to measure the depth of it. And they were, they were able to go down, but it wasn't as soft as we can see. If you look at the soil properties of that boot, assuming the astronaut was around 200 pounds, 220, you can see that it, it only went down about a half an inch. So the soils can hold, uh, you know, humans, but, you know, landing larger spacecrafts uh, in the future may be different. And, and what I mean by that is one of the questions we have on Mars is whether uh, SpaceX can land their big rocket on the surface of Mars without blowing a hole into the soft rocks that we found so far. But the moon, it's, it should be very easy to, uh, to find legitimate landing sites where we can land. Next slide. I should say one thing about the, about the soil. You don't have to change this, keep this slide. But this five, uh, as I mentioned with Cernan, when he couldn't get that stuff off, at Cornell University, they actually teach a class on um, fine-grained materials. And one of the things they do with the poor freshmen 
is when they come in, they grind up all these particles like hematite, all these different yellows and reds and all these, and they put them down to like submicron particles down to, you know, five to 10 micron particles. They let the kids put them in their hands and rub them. And when they do, they tell them to go wash their hands and come find out it will not come off. And it it's almost as if it's painted. And it takes about one or two weeks for that material to walk off. And the joke around Cornell is, is that when they when students are walking across and they see their hands, they know what materials and they know what their major is in the university. So it's kind of like a big joke. Um, but these these very fine uh, <coughs> excuse me, these very fine grain particles are crucial to especially man exploration on the moon. And um, <coughs> sorry. And what I mean by that, these particles can cut the heck out of spacesuits, out of cords, out of anything you put on the surface very, very abrasive. And so we have to be able to understand, and there's been a lot of work on the new spacesuits that are going to be on, on the moon, on trying on the seals of the arms and everything, trying to make sure that they uh, maintain their, uh, their pressure and everything. Now we have, uh, since the Apollo 17, we've done, the, this is a USGS, United States Geological Survey uh, map of Taurus-Lithrow area. It's been done by several scientists. These are the units here. Um, so you can see it is a multifaceted unit. So those units actually give you an idea. I'm not gonna go through all of them because they don't mean that much to a non-geologist, but they're telling you how the history of this region formed. And uh, again, it, you can see the area, there was a lot of volcanism in this area. Those basaltic rocks agree to that, um, but there are some areas that would be very good to, to go back and explore. Next slide. So we lifted off uh, and uh, left behind our, uh, our landing thing. Now, <clears throat> next slide. Um, you can still see the Apollo 17 materials. You look on the one on the left, that's an LRO image. You can still see the courses. The, the soil doesn't change much with time because there's no wind, there's no water. Um, how water is moving on the moon is still a very controversial subject. But you can see where the limb blasted off. You can see where some of the footprints and the rocks were. Um, and you can see the, all of our, some of our instruments and you can see it from space. So those instruments are still there. Anybody ever tells you that uh, we never been to the moon? You can show them pictures that we even left our trash behind. It's still there. Next slide. I just put this last slide up here. You heard about the Artemis. Artemis is designed for the humans. Before Artemis gets there and before it starts landing, there's a very complex program right now called CLIPS. And uh, CLIPS is commercial landers that they're starting to launch. One of them is supposed to go up tomorrow or today on, uh, Fal on uh, Falcon 9. And um, it was built by iSpace. And so we're going to start exploring the moon um, in detail to understand it. We need to understand the, the not only the physical properties of the soil, but the chemistry and things before we start putting humans on there to last more than three days or four days on the surface. And so we do have a very in-depth program coming up. And with that, I think I'm going to, I think that's my last slide. Hold on. Uh, yes, that's my last slide. And I'll open it to any questions that some people might have. Yes, this is Mr. Van Mella. I work for uh, Rockwell. And we yes, designed a whole series of experiments on the far side of the moon. Ah, uh, yes. Are you going? <laughs> are you going to the far side of the moon? Oh, I'd love to go to the far side of the moon. Now, 
I'll tell you the, the, the dichotomy of the moon is, is that the Mari, the dark areas of the moon, are only on the side facing the Earth. On the backside of the moon, where the Chinese right now actually have a rover on, on the backside of the moon, it looks basically just impacts, a lot of impact cratering. We don't see a lot of evidence of volcanism, which means that the center part of the, of the moon actually faced the Earth, which probably had something to do with the gravity of the, between the Earth-Moon system. But the far side of the moon would be excellent, not only for exploration, but if someday we could ever get a telescope or something on the far side of the moon, it would put all of our other telescopes to shame because the stability and everything would be awesome. Right, yeah. We teamed with some Australian, Bracewell and Honeywell, and uh, they uh, they had some nice experiments looking out to space. <laughs> not, That's exactly not, what you want to look at. You want to look out. Right. And it, block the Earth's, block the Earth's uh, light, and you're in great shape. Thank you. You're welcome. Gary, I'll turn it back over to you. Okay. It, well, I, okay, this one's... I think I got it now. Yes. Okay. Do we have anybody in, in this group that wants to have a question? Apparently not. Uh, engineers. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question. Okay. I am Jack Trost, retiree from TRW. But... Northrop Grumman impacted an upper stage in the South Pole of Mars. What yes. do you think they found other than the water that they did with the uh, satellite that was following that detected water? Yeah. Yes. Um, you're, you're, the area that you're talking about are what we call PSRs, permanently shadowed regions. These areas are very, very cold. In fact, one of my one of my best friends is an astronaut called Tom Young. And Tom Young and I did some work on in situ, I mean, on uh, low latency telerobotics that you might be able to do in these regions. What they pulled up was probably it, the impactor itself didn't impact very much. It gave a crater probably 25 meters to 50 meters. I mean, they didn't have a lot of mass pushing behind it. Uh, so it brought up within the probably the top 10, 10 meters of the uh, soil which would have brought up the same thing as you've seen here on the Apollo 17. The thing that it did do is it did vaporize what we believe is water. And I, I say the word we believe because um, for the moon, we, you know, you can end up with minerals that you don't have on earth. And we've been, we've actually found several minerals on Mars now that do not exist on earth. And so you can't take the idea that you're going to get the same kind of mineralogy and stuff from earth that you get on these bodies. And, um, and so that water could be in a phase that we don't understand, but the spectrometer shows what we believe is a, is a water peak. And so water and um, one of the other elements I heard that ISRU is looking at is helium-3. Helium-3 is, uh, I'm not sure what it's ever used for, but it seems to be very popular in uh, engineering with respect to fuels and uh, electricity and stuff. So there are things on the moon. In fact, I just gave, I just went and gave a talk at the Aussie 2 uh, Rock Mechanics Conference in Melbourne, Australia last week. And I basically told all the, all these miners are interested in planetary mining. And I told them, don't go to these bodies looking for things that you already know you have, gold, stuff like that. 
you're going to go to these bodies to find the exotic stuff that we don't have on Earth. And that's what you you might find. And I think that's what the astronauts are going to find. So what else they found in that hole, I don't know. I just know they did find what they believe is water vapor. Um, on Mars, we everybody keeps saying, oh, they discovered water. We find water. We've had We've known Mars has water since 1977. It's just where is it? And we're finding it every day we look. We find evidence of water. One of our people here. Uh, this I think this one's on. One of our people here was wanting to talk about one of one of our people was wanting to talk about the helium three. <laughs> you can tell uh, me. All I know is it's an element. No, um, I actually my my question has to do with that. How do you determine three point eight, three point nine billion years of age yeah. on a rock? Um, what what process do you do use to feel certain that that is the age of the rock? Well, we do that on Earth. We it's radiometric dating. We have all kinds of ways to do argon, argon. Uranium two thirty eight to plutonium uh, to lead to um, there's all kinds of, of what we call chronological indicators on Earth and we've used them for years even the carbon fourteen which I think has a half of a lifetime of maybe seventy five thousand years but we can go back with the argon argon and uranium two thirty eight to two thirty five the uh, measurements and we can get back to about the, the for the beginning of almost five billion years on the on those. So it's it's a pretty common terrestrial technique that we use, and that's the advantage of bringing samples back. In fact, you know, Mars is trying to bring these core samples back right now so they can date them. But the one sample we did on Mars, we we used argon argon in a mass in a time of flight mass spectrometer, and so we can come up. I mean, they have error bars of hundreds, uh, you know, of millions of years, but not billions of years. So uh, that's how we can get these ages. Bringing them back in, we've got some. We've got uh, laboratories in Houston and everything for the MAN program that can measure these rock units down to pretty good uh, accuracies. So it's it's a pretty common thing that we do on Earth with uh, dating. Thank you, Bob. I'm a uh, I'm Doug Stewart. I'm a documentary filmmaker, and uh, in the film that I made, um, there's footage of Apollo 17 on the lunar surface blasting off in color and that's pretty extraordinary and the camera actually tilts it up uh, mm -hmm. to follow the tra the trajectory up and you you showed two slides of it um mm -hmm. in your presentation is there anything that you can add about that particular broad part of the broadcast was that was that live was that uh, the no, first that time they'd, they'd done anything like that or uh, you got to remember the old cameras. I don't know if you go back to the Apollo 11, the cameras were almost like the, the, you know, the old NFL football games where you see these cameras being carried around and everything. And they actually had a camera on, uh, that they mounted a 35 millimeter on their area. Color in those days on, on was, was very new idea. And I, I believe that was a real time relay through the, uh, through the spacecraft to earth, but I would have to check. I'm, I'm I wouldn't say hundred percent. Um, but if not, it would it would have been downloaded from the the limb as it went up, and then being collected by the limb as it yeah. blasted off. We do that a... now. We do that now on Mars all the time. But we have orbiters yeah. and everything. And back in the seventies, they didn't have orbiters and stuff around the planet. Yeah, it was a pretty spectacular accomplishment for its time. Yeah, it sure was. And the cameras were getting smaller. I will tell you one secret that I heard. I heard that the Apollo twelve astronauts. Um, have, when they went out on the surface, they put a 35 millimeter camera that just kept sweeping and it would take pictures and they were supposed to pick it up and then bring it back to earth. And after they got in there, sealed up their spacecraft, 
they realized the camera was left on the surface. So that camera just kept taking pictures and eventually ran out of power. So if somebody goes back nowadays, those Apollo 12 cameras are still sitting there. I don't know how good the film will be, but uh, those cameras are still sitting there uh, on, the, on the surface of the moon. Those, do we have, am I, is this coming out as a, as an amplified voice or not? No. I hear you. Okay, well, we'll try it, we'll try it just this way. Uh, of course, those things, the, uh, those, those uh, film cameras actually would be uh, capable of, the film would be capable of being used with the exception of the uh, cosmic rays and other, and other radiation effects. That's correct. Probably. And it would be, they, they were put on, they were one of the first things that were put out and they worked the entire time during the Apollo 12 mission and they were supposed to be picked up at the end and they just forgot them. So that, that film is still setting there. There's a lot of stuff still setting there on the, on the moon. And of course we picked up some it's, of that on the, uh, on the, from the surveyor on Apollo 12. Uh, yeah, and just to let you know, to me, I think you said somebody was on the surveyor team. To me, the, one of the best landers that ever went to any planetary body is, was surveyor. That, that thing was, was built like a horse and it should have gone in other planets, not just uh, the, the moon. That was a fantastic instrument that was built. I've always been, a, I, w I grew up with the surveyor and, and that was always my um, top thing. And then when they brought the camera back, um, they um, they took it off. They took the camera off of the surveyor and brought it back in Apollo 12, I believe. Yes. I'll tell Jim right that. He'll appreciate it. I totally did. It also showed us, the, it had been on the moon surface for about a year and a half. So they got an idea of how much damage was being hap was happening to the hardware, um, you know, over time. Well, we uh, actually need to be moving out of this room in about uh, 15 minutes. Yep. So uh, we'll be uh, going off. Okay. Thanks, guys. Okay. Yeah. Have a good day. Yes. Uh, thank everybody. Thank thank the pre presenters. That was really they were uh, excellent, interesting presentations. I think. Okay. So the questions were only for the room or for everyone. Uh, well, go ahead and come on. Uh, go ahead and ask a question. Uh, we can hear this you. We're going to be starting to take things down. This is just an entertaining thought. Uh, years ago. Uh, I attended the, as I do every year, Society of Experimental Test Pilots Symposium, and uh, I had signed up a little late, and I told the executive director, Paula, give me the best seat you can find me at this time. So I rolled up there with my uh, tuxedo, and where I sat was next to Gene Cernan for four hours, and uh, was that something. Uh, there were pictures uh, up on the, uh, on the big screen of uh, Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh, and then there was a picture of him standing on the moon, and he leans over and says, I had a scratch on my nose that I couldn't itch. <laughs> Just that.
pretty funny. Outstanding presentation uh, to all the presenters, so thank you for making this uh, available to us for, uh, virtually as well. That's a real treat. Thank you, guys. Have a good night for me.